open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. As we continue our study through Judges, this morning's message is entitled, God's Promise Deliverer. And before we look into today's word, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, as always, we are so thankful for this day that you've given us, a day to live and breathe and move and to enjoy what you've created. And this morning, Lord God, we ask that your spirit would teach us your word as we read through it and discuss it. And Lord God, that we would see and look forward to the promised deliverer of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So this morning, we're actually going to look at our first judge. Uh, Now, we're not going to go verse by verse through the entire book. We're just going to point out and highlight a few judges through our study this summer. And uh, if you don't know, the book of Judges I mentioned a few weeks ago, and maybe even last week, it's not chronological, meaning it doesn't go judge by judge how they delivered Israel. It's interesting. It really talks about all the judges of each different tribe. So this morning, we're going to look at the deliverer who came from the tribe of Benjamin. And his name is Ehud, and it's a great story. And what we're going to see in this story is how God promises to bring a deliverer to the, to, he calls them the sons of Israel, but as we'll see, it's actually Benjamin. He's dealing with that tribe. But the deliverer from God has always been promised, if you think about it. From the very beginning, remember we started out a few weeks ago looking at, actually it was on Father's Day, looking at the covenant promise made to Father Abram. And even then, God promised to deliver. He also promised to deliver to Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and as we've seen, to the tribes of Israel. And as you continue through the Old Testament, he also promises to deliver from King da- to King David, then to all the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. And then to the Jews, they're called post-exilic Israel, afterwards, they're looking for a deliverer. In each of these generations, though, God did send a deliverer. And in some ways, God sends types of deliverers who were foreshadows of the greatest deliverer, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect and greatest deliverer of all time. When Jesus first came, he inaugurated his kingdom in his first advent. Today, we look for the return of that deliverer when he will fully consummate his kingdom. So in a way, Jesus has come once, literally, and we're still looking for him to come again. Today, now, we'll look at a deliverer talked about in the book of Judges. We'll see that promised deliverer that we read about in the past few weeks come to Israel. And in many ways, he's a foreshadow of the work that Jesus came to do. And you'll see that, and I'll point that along the way. You'll see how, hey, I could see how Jesus delivered in some similar ways. So with that said, let's go to our text, starting in verse 12. And we're going to walk through this, and then we'll come back and make some application. And I'll point out some things along the way. Uh, Starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So let's stop right here for a minute. Again, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've already talked about the writer of Judges says this is going to be the pattern. The sons of Israel are going to do evil. God's going to send a nation to judge them for various reasons, as we'll see. 
Then he's going to send a deliverer. They're going to cry out. He's going to send a deliverer, and they're going to be freed. And then they're going to lapse back into sin and go over and repeat this cycle. And so here actually is the second deliverer that's talked about in Judges. We skipped over one of them. But we're going to focus on this one. So the sons of Israel, who's he talking about? He's talking about the tribe of Benjamin. And you get that from down in verse 15 when he says he calls a deliverer from Benjamin, a Benjamite. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says here in verse 12. What evil did they do? We're not told. But if you remember in the first two chapters, there was a summary statement of the evil that Israel would do. It's either idolatry, where they were full-blown worshiping false gods. Number two, they were forsaking God, the God of Israel, the God that brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. Or they were just continually disobeying God in all that they did. We're not told specifically, but remember again in the first two chapters, there was a summary of the things that they did. And if you were to go back to verse 1, Benjamin, look at actually uh, chapter 1, not verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21. And you'll see exactly as we're looking at each tribe going into their allotted land, what they did or didn't do with the surrounding nations around or the people within their land. Look at verse 21. It tells us about Benjamin. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, the day of the writing of the book of Judges. So Benjamin did not follow the commands of the Lord to drive out all the inhabitants. They left them there. And again, as we've seen over the past few weeks, it eventually leads to the Israelites falling into sin because they adapted to their culture instead of being different from their culture. So something in that tribe uh, happened, evil enough for God to respond. Look at verse 12, going back to verse 12 again. But the sons of Israel cried, oh, that's 15. Now the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so, so because of this evil, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord's response is to bring judgment on the nation of Israel, and specifically, as I've said, Benjamin, right? He strengthens, it says in verse 12, Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they've done evil. Verse 13, and he, speaking of Eglon, gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, the sons of Israel serve Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So because Benjamin did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord did a few things here. One, he strengthens Eglon, a foreign king of Moab, against Israel. Why would he do this? Well, we've learned in chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2, look at verse 20 and 21. One of the reasons God will bring judgment on his people is because of this. Look at verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any nations which Joshua left when he died. Verse 22 as well. So it's a discipline for the evil they've done. And then in verse 22, it says, In order, this is why, to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain. You remember we talked about that last week. 
So here's, these aren't an exhaustive list of why God allows bad things to happen. But particularly with the nation of Israel, and specifically in Benjamin, either, he, one, he's just disciplining for their evil, which seems to be the, an answer. He could also be using this tough time to divide the real believers from the fake ones. That's what verses 21 and 22 said of verse 21. So when hard times come, he's going to find out who really follows the Lord. Even look at chapter 3. I want to show you this as well. Look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. And when the writer was talking about why God left the nations amongst Israel and what he would do with him, he says they were there, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So part of the discipline process was, one, just straight discipline, or two, I'm going to leave them there to test them to see who's the real believers and who's not. Because it is in hard times when you find out who's real and who's not. He also did this, according to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, if we go back, to strengthen Israel for future wars. How do you get strengthened in anything? You have to go through testing. You have to develop uh, muscle, for example, if you're in competition event. You have to develop skill. And remember in chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now these are the nations which the the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. So one of the reasons why God allowed this to happen was he needed to test a new generation and prepare them for physical battles because they had not gone through it. Their fathers had gone through it, but they themselves had not gone through it. So, again, the reasoning behind God allowing Eglon to come against the nation of Israel could be various, various reasons. Again, to discipline Israel for the evil, that's no doubt that what's happening. But it could also be to strengthen them for future wars. And thirdly, to find out who the real believers were and who were the false ones. So let's move on. Go down, back down to verse 13 of our text. He said, that, and he gathered them to himself, speaking of Eglon, the sons of Amic and Ammon, and he went and defeated Israel. So God strengthened Eglon. This came from God. Don't miss that. God allowed this to happen. God also allowed Israel to be defeated. And the, re- the rest of verse 13, and he allowed the city of the palm trees, which is Jericho, to be possessed by Eglon. And he allowed Israel to serve Eglon for 18 years. 18 years in subjection to a foreign king. So what happens next? How do the sons of Israel respond to this? Go to verse 15 and we'll see their response. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. So their response was they cried out in pain. In anguish. In the original languages, it's noted by commentators that their cry isn't a cry of repentance, but just a cry of pain and anguish. And that's why I said that. Not necessarily, Lord, we're sorry for what we've done. It's just like, Lord, we're suffering. Please help us. And there's a clue that kind of agrees with this in chapter 2, verse 18. Turn there with me and I'll show you. Again, 
the first two chapters were summaries of what's going to happen through the rest of the book. So this is why we can refer to this. In verse 18, it says, When the Lord raised up judges for them, just like we're reading right now, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Why? For the Lord was moved by pity for their groanings because of those who oppressed and afflicted. This is a little hint that they're suffering. They're just crying out for God. They're not necessarily repenting for what they've done. And even though they might deserve punishment, God still relents. Again, it's like a a parent. Those of you that have been parents before, even when we discipline our children and we tell them, what's that famous thing? This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And the kid's like, yeah, right. It does. You have pity because you don't want to see your child suffer, even though they deserve it and they need to learn. God, in the same way, has pity for his children in, in the tribe of Benjamin. And so they cry out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Like a, a, a good parent, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. So the God, God saying, okay, he's having pity on them. Maybe they've learned, maybe they haven't, we'll see. God really knows. But regardless, God raises up a deliverer for them. And so he goes into that deliverer. Look at verse 15 again. Ehud, the son of Gera, the, ben- the Benjamite, so this is why I say the tribe of Benjamin, a left-handed man. A left-handed man. Why would he talk about a left-handed man? To give us left-handers some, yeah, that's right, left-hander. Any left-handers in here besides me? There we go. We are the deliverers, people. The le- we're le- Anyways, the left-handed man. There's some things in Scripture like, why did they put that? It's interesting because if I remember in my studies, Benjamin, Benjamin means the son of the right hand. So he's the son of the right hand, but he's left-handed. And so commentators, believe he could be ambidextrous, and he could be, and this is important because he's going to be a great warrior, as you'll see in a few minutes. He's going to use his left hand. There's always a little hint. That left hand is going to be important in the story, as we'll see. So Ehud is stepping on the scene. So even though I want you to notice this too in verse 15. So God raises him up. And at the end of 15, it says, And the sons of Israel sent the tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So God says Ehud is going to be the guy that's going to deliver Israel. But Israel plays their part. But they, they choose him to deliver the tribute, the money, to Eglon, the king. So you see God's sovereignty and man's free will working hand in hand together. Interesting. Verse 16. So here we go. Verse 16. What happens? Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. So Ehud makes a two-edged sword. And this is where I want to show you a little bit of foreshadowing of the future. The two-edged sword is also described as what in the New Testament? The word of the word of God, two-edged sword, right? It's like in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when describing Jesus, it says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Just a little foreshadow of Christ's deliverance through his words. And then in Revelation nineteen fifteen, in the final battle 
at the return of Christ. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword that with it he may strike down the nations. So these literal things in the Old Testament can be translated symbolically, figuratively, metaphorically in the New Testament as well. Interesting to note that Christ's words are the two-edged sword that ultimately defeats Satan as well. Just a little note. Like I said, I'll point out some of those things along the way. So Ehud makes a two-edged sword, right? And he puts it on his right thigh. Why? So he can do what? Grab it with his left hand. Left hand, right? Important. So he goes to, pre- uh, to present a tribute to the king that they're in subjection to. Verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Okay? <laughs> Why is that important? Again, the author's just, you know, being real. I'm just, just being real here. And it came about. Um, I got no correlation between Christ and that, so just we'll move on. Verse 17. He presented a tribute to Eglon, and it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. So apparently Ehud came with a entourage carrying this tribute of money, probably, and gifts to Eglon. And he sends them away so that he can be with himself, right, to with the king. And verse 19 says, But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilga and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. So Ehud sends away his people because he's going to go by himself to do this thing. And he has a dagger hidden in his cloak, hiding it from Eglon. And I can't help but think, again, a foreshadowing of how the true meaning of Christ going to the cross was hidden from Satan. Satan thought he was winning, right? I got Jesus delivered to me. I'm going to kill him on the cross. But little did he know what was prophesied in the Old Testament, that you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to do what? Crush your head. I thought that was interesting. Eglon, unsuspected of what's really going to happen, thinking he's getting something great from Ehud, a great message. And what does Eglon do when he says, keep silent, and all who attended left him? So all his attendants take this as a cue to, like, leave the room. So now you just have Eglon and Ehud together all by themselves. Verse 20, Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in this cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. So all the way in. Right? Didn't stop. And the fat closed over the blade. And he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and refuse came out. So all, when he pulls his hand out, just all the bile and gunk comes out of e- Eglon's stomach. So Ehud, Ehud kills Eglon by stabbing, stabbing him in the stomach. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. 
it's interesting because he somehow after they go from their uh, this public chamber, they go, seems they went into another private room, and he after he kills this guy, he locks the door and leaves, and escapes secretly. And verse twenty-three again. So Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Verse twenty-four. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. So the attendants thought that their master was just going to the bathroom. So that's why the door's locked. He's, he's by himself. Let's leave him alone. In the meantime, Ehud escapes. And the attendants delay in finding their dead king. So look at verse 25. They waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key, opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now, Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. So Ehud makes a secret escape. Maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but I think of Jesus making his escape by those who were surrounded and, told, and were left there to protect him. Three days later, Christ rose from the dead. And the soldiers weren't even aware of it. Nobody was aware of it. He escapes. Ehud escapes. And then verse 27, what does he do? It came about when he had arrived back at camp that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel went down with him to the hill country and he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan opposite of Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross. They, they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So Ehud sounds a trumpet, and leads Israel into battle. And again, I think of Jesus after his resurrection leads his believers into battle every day. Christ is before us. He's in front of us leading the charge. And even in the book of Revelation, it is Christ when he returns. He's in front of all the resurrected believers that come back to conquer the earth. And can't Jesus, after his resurrection, say the Lord has given the enemy into our hands? For we have the ability, don't we, to defeat the wiles and schemes of the devil, Scripture says. Ehud and Israel defeat Moab, and there's 80 years of peace. And I, think, I can't help but think of since we've received the free gift of God's grace and forgiveness, that we now have peace with God. So that's the story of the first deliverer that we cover in the book of Judges. And I just want to go into a time of application now. If you, and I want to say this. The historical count of Ehud should remind us of what God has done and continues to do for his people. Well, what does he do? He continues to deliver. God promised and did raise up a deliverer for his people, didn't he? I started at the very beginning talking about all times that God promised to bring a deliverer to his people. And he did do that. At the, let's first look at when Jesus came. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is the song of, or the prophecy of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. Once he was finally able to speak, if you know his story, he was struck silent because he did not believe that he was going to have a son. Once he finally could speak and then found out that his son was going to be the one who proclaims the coming of the king, the deliverer, look at what he says. And I hope this makes sense in light of all that we've been studying so far in the Old Testament. You see how God delivers. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, redeeming them, delivering them. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy toward his, our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Remember this covenant we've been talking about for weeks now. This covenant that God gave to Abram, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, the nation of Israel, that they are going to be delivered. A promised deliverer. This covenant, and this is what Zechariah is referring to. This covenant is realized. It's inaugurated at the first coming of Christ. The oath which he swore to Abram, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemy, might serve him Without fear, we just sung about that, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So God promised and did raise up a deliverer for his people in Christ Jesus. So I hope again this story of Ehud as we see God promising a deliverer, then bringing him, reminds us of the deliverer who has come for us and who has delivered us. Even in the midst of issues that we have, you've been delivered. You've been redeemed. God has also defeated and is defeating and will defeat the enemy for his people. Let me show you what I mean. God has defeated the enemy at the crucifixion of, the crucifixion of Christ. Did he not defeat Satan? He prophesied this and told us about this before he did it. Go to the Gospel of John, and I will show you uh, through Scripture how Christ was defeated at the cross, or not Christ, Satan was defeated at the cross, cross. John chapter 12, verse 31 through 33. Jesus speaking and foretelling of his death says this, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That is Satan. He's going to be cast out. When? And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He's talking about at his death, the crucifixion. Is that the crucifixion where Satan was cast out in some way? Obviously, he's still active, so there is a way that he's defeated, cast out. 
Turn with me to chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus, trying to comfort his disciples, says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So he's saying, hey, this defeat of Satan doesn't mean life is going to be perfect. He's saying you're still going to have tribulation in this world, but take comfort and courage. I've already overcome this world. So we get this misconception that, hey, because Satan can't be defeated yet because there's still issues in the world. No, it's clear that Satan's been defeated in some sense. And take courage even in the midst of tribulation because Christ has overcome the world. And in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus on the cross, therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Say, Satan was defeated on the cross in a sense. No longer can deceive the nations anymore from believing the gospel. One last verse about Satan being defeated on the cross. Turn with me to, this is one of my favorites, Colossians chapter 2. It reminds me of the hymn that we just sung. Colossians 2, verse 13. Making our fingers work today. Colossians 2, verse 13. It says this. Uh, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against you. Oh, wrong verse, sorry. All right. See, that's why you got to bring your Bibles. You can't just believe me. I was reading chapter 3. I was getting ahead of myself. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us. All, right, we talked about that. I always sung about it. all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. When did he do this? And he was taken it and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's when all of our sins were forgiven. Our debt was canceled. John prayed all those sins that we are committing now and in the future, we're at the cross, forgiven. And But not only that, that's not my point because I want to show you where Satan was defeated. Verse 15, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public display over them, having triumphed over them through him. Again, an example of God defeating Satan and his authorities at the cross. So God, in one sense, has defeated Satan already. We're proof of that. And then think of how he is, not only has he defeated, but he's also defeating Satan every day. Every day in our own lives, how many times have you overcome the temptations and Satan is defeated? How many times is a, every day does someone get saved where Satan is defeated again? Every time. Romans chapter 8, verses 36 through 37 also talks about this. Romans 8, chapter 30, or Romans chapter 8, verse 36 says this. 
just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, meaning for Christ. This is talking about persecution. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the promise that even every day Satan is being defeated in the midst of our struggles and our trials. We're over we're uh, overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. We conquer who? Satan every day. And then this is what we all want to see, the final and ultimate defeat of Satan where he's no longer operative in this world. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. Starting in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of Gog and Magog to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the sea. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen, right? We're like, let's do it now. Let's go. Let's get out of this place. Let's transform this world. So I hope you can see that God has defeated Satan in the past. He's defeating Satan daily. And in the future, he's going to defeat him ultimately forever. And again, I hope you see this starting with the account of Ehud, how God raises up a deliverer and does what he says and delivers his people. And because God has defeated, defeats, and will defeat the enemy, how then shall we live? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and close here with just four four points of application. Because of what Christ has done, defeating Satan on the cross, 1 Corinthians 15. This is talking about the second coming of Christ where Paul's assuring the church because Christ resurrected from the dead, you too will rise from the dead. At that last trumpet, the dead in Christ will raise first. And then he says, we shall, who will remain shall uh, rise, and forever we shall be with the Lord. It's kind of talking about that in verse 58. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. says this i love this verse therefore so because of all that paul has said already about christ resurrecting and death being defeated therefore my beloved brethren the church be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your toil is not in vain of the lord so because of god's promise of the coming deliverer and his resurrection And the ultimate defeat of death and Satan, he says that the Christian should be this. Number one, steadfast. That means sitting firm in your trust in God. That word, it has a picture of somebody sitting down, showing that they trust in what they're sitting on. They're sitting down, they're comfortable. We as believers should be comfortable in our faith in Christ. And not only that, he says, be immovable. 
you're not moving from your faith. You're trusting God. I'm not budging. I'm not moving. I'm resolved in my faith in Christ. Thirdly, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because of that, because you're strong in the Lord and you're not shaking your faith, you can be abounding in the work of the Lord, doing the work of ministry and whatever God has called you to do. Each and every one of us is called to glorify God with our life somehow. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? We should be firm and resolute in our faith in Christ. We can trust God. Now are we working and moving forward in the Lord? And know this. Lastly, in verse, the fourth point is this, that our hard work to God is not in vain. Although sometimes as we're working for the Lord, it's a struggle, it's hard. It looks like nothing is coming of our, our work. Nobody cares. You know, maybe... As a pastor, man, I don't see like massive people, you know, coming forward or going back at altar calls or uh, ask for prayer or, you know, the church isn't exploding or whatever the case may be for you in the ministry that God has called you to do. Know that your hard work to God is not in vain. God's going to reward that. It's not worthless what you do. Maybe your ministry, nobody sees what you're doing, but God does. You know, maybe your part in the church is giving. Or it's in prayer for somebody in the church. For the, you're always praying for the church, and that's toil for you. Maybe you don't see the fruits of your labor, but God sees it, and you will be rewarded handsomely. I want to close with this final quote from Matthew Henry, who is, Matthew Henry, who is a commentator, a Puritan commentator. I, I love the Puritans. It's, it's a long quote, but I just want you to see it, look up at it on the board or up here, and then listen to it as I read it. Because he's talking about this section of Scripture about being rewarded or that your toil is not in vain. He says, note, the labor of Christians will not be lost labor. They may lose for God, but they will lose nothing by him. Nay, there is more implied than is expressed in this phrase. It means that they shall be abundantly rewarded. He will never be found unjust to forget their labor of love. Nay. He will do exceedingly abundantly above what they can now ask or think. Neither the services they do for him nor the sufferings they endure for him are worthy to be compared with the joy hereafter to be revealed in them. Note, those who serve God have good wages. They cannot do too much nor suffer too much for so good a master. If they serve him now, they shall see him hereafter. If they suffer for him him on earth, they shall reign with him in heaven. If they die for his sake, they shall rise again from the dead. Be crowned with glory, honor, and immortality, and inherit eternal life. That's a reward for each and every believer in Christ. Let me read that last sentence again. They shall rise again from the dead. Be crowned with glory, honor, and immortality. All that is from God, not from this world. And inherit eternal life. That is our reward. That's what we look forward to. We look forward to our great deliverer coming back a second time, defeating this world, raising us up, and being crowned with glory and honor for his sake. Let's pray. Lord God, we, I realize, Lord, that this world is, is tough for each and every one of us in this room. We all have struggles and trials and sometimes we give in to them, and sometimes they are unbearable. 
and we do not see your hand at work. And Lord God, just like Israel, who suffered 18 years under the hand of Eglon, they cried out to you. We know, Lord God, that you too will deliver us, if not in this life, in the next. May you give each and every one of us the patience to endure suffering and tribulation that you promise will come to every believer. But you promised and guaranteed that you've overcome the world. And therefore, we can be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for our toil is not in vain. For we serve a living and powerful God who will return and deliver us from all things. So we look forward to that day, Lord. Give us the strength to, again, to endure in the meantime. May we never give up, no matter what's going on in the world and how bleak it looks. May we have the strength and trust in you to continue to serve you. For you are worthy. And we thank you for this, Lord God. In Jesus' name.